That's the heart of the message that we proclaim. Jesus as the righteousness of the people of God. Trust that each and every one here tonight is very aware of that reality. We are delighted again to have this weekend and to consider these themes that were for a long time in some way hidden. They were not as well known as they ought to have been. And a number of men arose and by the grace of God began to trumpet them far and wide to the degree that our world looks very different and it would not look anywhere like anything like what it does now if they had not done so. And again, if you were here this morning for our Sunday school, Dr. Matt's school was dealing with uh, the Reformation and its relationship to history. Uh, I had all sorts of ideas that were in my mind, just, just how the, the relationship between the veracity of God's word, and once you depart from that, how it just undermines everything. And there's nothing stable, nothing, not even history. There's a complete abandonment from the Word, then there's an abandonment from everything altogether. So what's needed today is a return to the Word. And Christians, I think I emphasized this last Lord's Day in my sermon, we need to be, we need to love the Word, really love it. And in our conversation, we need to get people back to reading the Bible. I'm telling families, and when they're, when they're shipwrecked, when they're wondering, why is this going on? Why, are, are, why is my family going through this? Why is it that I don't know where to turn? Why do I feel this way? Encouraging them, open up the Bible. Read the Bible for yourself and with your family. It's so utterly essential. And that, that we can all encourage our friends and our family and our communities to do as God opens up doors of opportunity. We're very thankful again that Pastor Barkman is here, joined with Dr. Matsko to make our weekend what it has been. It's been a privilege to get to know him and to meet his wife as well. And we trust that the Lord will bless our brother as he brings us the word. Let us receive it as the very word of God. May our ears be circumcised, may our hearts be tender, and may we receive it to the joy of our souls. God bless you, brother. Thank you for coming. Well, again, I thank you for the gracious invitation to be with you this Lord's Day and yesterday and Friday night. I've enjoyed so much these, these uh, lectures on the historical aspects of the Reformation and particularly on Friday night, the Diet of Worms. But again, this morning, that was, that was so helpful. And I appreciate that very much as well. And uh, uh, just... Renewing acquaintance with many of you and making acquaintances with some of you for the first time has been a real delight. I feel very much at home here. I really do. And I thank the Lord for the opportunity of being with you for these couple of days. I need to make a couple of corrections of things I said that turned out to be wrong. Uh, One concerns one of your elders, Tim Farr. I said we were in high school together, but he tells me we were not. He, was, he did not go to Bob Jones Academy, but he hung around and came to some of the games and hung around with some of the students. So I might be excused for thinking that in my memory, that he was actually uh, enrolled in the school, but he didn't uh, come until later in the university. But it's been good to see him again. And then let's see here, I had something else I was going to correct, and I can't remember what it was. So if it, uh, 
If it comes to mind, maybe I'll, I'll mention it later, but that's uh, just like a, a bird that just flies right through and just keeps right on going. So, gone it is. Open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at one of the more difficult sections of the book of Romans. There are several, I'm sure you know. If someone said, what is the most difficult passage in the book of Romans? I'm sure some would say Romans chapter 9. That's the most difficult one, and it certainly is for many people. Some might say Romans chapter 11, the chapter that focuses upon eschatology. That becomes a real challenge for many people as well. But this passage we're going to look at tonight in Romans chapter 5 is also a difficult one, but a very, very important one. We are considering in the three messages that I brought to you the theme of justification. That's what ties all of these messages together. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, we saw that justification is the doctrine that rocked the Western world because of the way that it affected Martin Luther and how God used him to wake up the whole Western world to the truth of the doctrine of justification. This morning, we looked at the doctrine of justification in terms of its, its uh, relationship to Abraham and to David, and we saw that justification is by faith. And we must understand that. It is by faith. It is not by works. And any other view of justification is entirely erroneous. Well, tonight we're going to consider the doctrine of imputation. And that becomes a little bit more um, challenging, but I don't think it's going to be difficult for you tonight. But what I have called imputation, the foundation of justification. We're dealing with justification how a man, a woman, a young person, how a person is made right before God, made right with God, how we are justified, declared righteous before a thrice holy God. That is the heart of the doctrine of salvation. And that was indeed the key doctrine of the Reformation. But now tonight we get into the question of how exactly it is that God can justly justify the unrighteous sinner. We know that He can, we know that He does, but how that comes about is challenging at times, and imputation is the key to that. Now what is imputation? Well, imputation is God ascribing to the sinner to his account, uh, something that was not there before. And he places, in the case of imputing righteousness, he places to our account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He puts it there. He imputes it to us. He gives it to us. He counts it in our, on our behalf. And that's what we're looking at tonight, imputation, the foundation of justification. How can one man's, and here's the problem, here's the heart of it all, how can one man's righteousness secure the righteousness 
of multitudes. How can the righteousness of one man, Jesus Christ, who robed himself in human flesh, he became a man, how can his righteousness, one man, become the righteousness of, no doubt, millions of others? That's the question. And the way that question is generally answered, at least as it was in my experience growing up, is that, well, Jesus Christ is different from we are, which is certainly true, and because He is the Son of God as well as a man, 100% God, 100% man, then His value as a human being was so much greater than that of any one man. And so because of the greater value of His life, then His righteousness was of greater worth, and it was enough righteousness to apply to millions of others. Well, that's the answer I think that most people would give, but it's not the answer that the Apostle Paul gives in the book of Romans. And Paul answers the question in this way. He says it has to do with the principle of imputation. And you can't really understand the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the sinner, the believing sinner, unless you first understand the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity. That's imputation. That all of us became sinners because Adam sinned. He was our representative. He was the head of the human race. He was, as we sometimes use the term, the federal head of the human race. And what he did in the garden has been imputed to all of us. Now some will object to that, and we'll talk a little bit about the objections somewhere along the line here. But right at the beginning, I need to say to you, if you reject the doctrine of the imputed sin of Adam... What you are doing is undermining the basis of the imputed righteousness of Christ. If it is wrong, if it is unjust, if it cannot be that God could impute righteously the sin of Adam to his posterity, then there really is no just basis for God to impute the righteousness of Christ to those who believe in him. The two hang together. You remove one and you have removed the other. And therefore, that's why I say that imputation is the very foundation of justification. Without that, without imputation, there really is no doctrine, no proper doctrine, no true doctrine of justification. Now, that's where we're going tonight. And so we will see it in Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 12 through 21. Wherefore, as by one man... Sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Stop there for a moment. For years I read that to mean death passed upon all men because all of us sinned too. Adam sinned. The sentence of death was passed upon him for his sin. We have all sinned as well, and so therefore, because of our sin, the sentence of death is placed upon us. But that's not what it's saying, even though that's true. There's not a, not a person in all the world who has not sinned. 
There's not a person in all the world who has not, as it were, said, I second Adam's choice. Adam chose to sin, and I agree with that. I do it too. I follow quickly after him. That's true of all of us, but that's not what this is teaching. It's not saying that, that Adam's death was, or Adam's sin is the, is, the, is the reason why sin has been applied to us. It's saying, or, or that our sin is the reason why, why death has been applied to us. It's saying Adam's sin is the reason that death has fallen upon all of us. And we must understand that. Death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that, and this would be maybe a clearer way to read this phrase, for that all have sinned in Adam. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned in Adam. All sinned when Adam sinned. That's what the Scripture is teaching. For until the law was in the world, for until the law, sin rather, was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. See the relationship? The many who are condemned because of Adam's sin, but the many who are redeemed because of Christ's righteousness. And not, verse 16, as it was by one that sinned, so that the gift for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, death came upon us because of one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace And of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So, by the obedience of one, shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord." What we see is representative headship introduced in verses 12 through 14. We see representative heads contrasted, Adam and Christ, 
in verses 15 through 17. And we see representative headship triumphant in verses 18 through 21. Representative headship introduced. It begins with Adam's ruinous fall, as we read about it in verse 12. Adam introduced sin into the world. Adam's sin brought the penalty of death into the world. Adam's sin and its penalty was shared by all of Adam's posterity. The sentence of death was placed upon all because all sinned when Adam sinned. That's Adam's ruinous fall. We move on to what we might call sin's pernicious root in verses 13 and 14. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them which had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, which is the figure of him which was to come. Sin was certainly present before the Mosaic law. That's the law that is referred to here. But we are told sin is not imputed where there is no law. It is not applied to one's account. It is not credited as something that must be dealt with where there is no law. That may sound to us like it's saying nobody was, was counted guilty of sin before the law was given in Moses. But that's not what it's saying. But it's saying that, it's clear that men sinned before Moses. Oh my, that's clear. They sinned right out of the gate, didn't they? And although you have to remember some of the events that happened before Moses gave the law to be certain that sin not only was present, but it abounded. Why did God destroy the world with a flood? Because of sin, widespread sin throughout the human race. Why did God scatter the peoples at the Tower of Babel? Because of sin. There's, there's evidence of sin, there's no question about it. But what this is telling us is that there are degrees of realization, of understanding of sin, and that understanding was greatly increased when the law was given. The law made sin more clear, more plain. It gave us perspectives on sin that otherwise we would not have had. We, we began to realize that th certain things were sinful that perhaps we would not have before thought were sinful. Do you, do you remember what it is that the Apostle Paul said was he was was especially convicted of in the Ten Commandments. It's a sin of covetousness. It's not the first one that I would have thought about when I'm thinking about the, the sins that I have committed and what the law says in the way of condemning sin. I don't think that's the first one my mind would have gone to. But the Apostle Paul says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known that covetousness is sin. Well, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true of a lot of people around the world today that would never know, never consider that covetousness is sin. But that does not mean 
that they have not sinned just because they do not have Mosaic law. In the earlier chapters of Romans, we are told that God has placed some elements of the law, Ten Commandments, if we want to think of that in terms of the law in the moment, and I think that would be the way to think, that God has placed certain elements of the Ten Commandments within man's psyche, within his conscience, within his heart, within his mind, so that those who have never heard the Ten Commandments, have never read a Bible, have never heard of the law of God, have never heard a preacher, nevertheless know that when they murder, they have sinned. When they steal, they have sinned. How do they know that? Because their God-given conscience condemns them, but it might not condemn them when they covet. You see what I'm saying? There's these different levels. And what this is saying to us is that God does not count a man guilty of offenses that he is not aware of. That's the beautiful justice of God. (laughs) We're going to have plenty of sins to answer for before God. You better flee to Christ. You better get under the blood of Christ because you don't want to answer for any sins, but God is just, and He says, if, and He's the only one who knows. He's the only one who knows our hearts. So God says, all right, if you were not aware that coveting is a sin, I'm not going to charge you guilty of coveting. I'll just charge you guilty of stealing and lying and, and uh, adultery and all the other things you've done that you knew were wrong. But... I think what Paul is getting at in this rather obscure verse or two that I just read here, I think what Paul is getting at is something like this. If it required men to sin before they became sinners, you have to follow me here, When do men become sinners? They become sinners at birth. They become sinners because of Adam's sin, because of Adam's fall, the sin that was imputed to us in Adam. When Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam. But if that were not true, if that were not true, and some people deny that, even though it's plainly taught in Scripture, if it were not true that we all became sinners in Adam, but rather only became sinners when we sinned, then surely... Somebody would have made it, say, to adulthood without sinning. But nobody has. (laughs) Nobody has. And so even though many people have lived without the declared law of God, they've never heard it, they're sinners. And they're sinners because they started out that way. We're not sinners because we sin, as I used to hear Dr. Bob Jones Sr. say. And I heard him preach many times before he died, I think, in 1968. But we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's why we sin. 
because we're already sinners. If that were not true, I say, surely somebody would have made it <laughs> to adulthood without sinning, but nobody has. Sin, as we read in this passage, reigned. It reigned. It ruled the human race. It reigned over everyone from Adam to Moses, even though the law had not been given then. How come? Because of this doctrine of the imputed sinfulness of Adam. His sin is imputed to all his posterity. We are sinners from birth. We are born that way. Sometimes you'll talk to people who believe because they've been taught that all people are born basically good. We're born innocent little children. We're born good. And somewhere along the way we go bad and it's generally attributed to the influence of others. Well... I think we can fix that, can't we? Let's just take a baby and isolate it from other people, keep it away from the influence of other sinners, and just see how it grows up without, it starts out good, and it doesn't get influenced by anybody else. So we should have a righteous person who is untainted by sin because we have managed to keep them undefiled from the influence of others, but nope. Sin reigns, and therefore death reigns. Most parents understand that their little babies are liars before they even know how to talk. They learn, don't they? Don't they? It doesn't take them long to figure out that when I cry, I get mother's attention. And so, when there's nothing wrong, I'm, I'm hungry, I cry, I get mother's attention. All right, that's legitimate, I, I think. I've got a dirty diaper, I'm uncomfortable, I cry, I get mother's attention. That's, that's legitimate, and I think. I would just like to have some attention, so I cry, and mother comes running, and they're not hungry, won't eat, won't eat a bite. They're not, they're, they're dirty, they're, their diapers are perfectly clean, there's nothing wrong, they're not uncomfortable. What did that little child do? Just lied to you. That's what it did. How did it learn to do that? It can't even talk yet. This passage explains how. We're born that way. We're born sinners. Isn't that the truth? That is the truth. But that brings us to this whole issue of Adam. Back to verse 14, Nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is... I'll, I'll comment on that phrase in a moment, but I'm getting to the last phrase. Who is the figure of him that was to come? And here we get into this representative headship. Adam is the figure of him who was to come. Who's that? Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15... If I can put my finger on the right verse, that Christ is the, the second Adam. I'm looking for it here, <laughs> not putting my finger on it. 
But Christ is the second Adam. There it is. As it is written, verse 45, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last, Adam, was made a quickening spirit. The first Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam. There are only two. There's only two heads, only two federal heads, only two representative heads, because there are only two humanities. There'll never be a third one, so we've got the first and the last. The first one is Adam, the second is Christ. And the first one is the head of the human race, And because of his sin, that human race is a fallen human race. The second one, Christ, is the head of his redeemed race. And all who are in in Adam are condemned to die. All who are in Christ are redeemed to eternal life. That's the point. And so we have representative headship introduced in verses 12 through 14. We secondly have the two heads contrasted, representative heads contrasted in verses 15 through 17. Oh, I said I was going to comment, and I will before I move on so that I don't prove to be untrue. (laughs) I said I would. That death reigned from Adam to Moses even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. What does that mean? Well, I think, we'll let the theologians battle it out, but I think that means that Adam sinned with a completely clear understanding of what he was doing. He knew the law of God. He did not have a sinful nature at that point. He hadn't sinned yet. He understood what he was doing, and he chose to do it. Now, There are many who have not sinned in that way. They don't have the clarity of understanding that Adam had. They don't have the clarity of the law of God, the requirements of God that Adam had. But they sin nevertheless, even though they're not sinning in the same way that Adam did, after the same similitude of Adam's transgression. Nevertheless, as we read here, they are sinners as well. But now we move on. To verse 15, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of, me, of one, rather, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded to many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one. Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, these representative heads contrasted. We see in verse 15 the extent of their influence. We see first Adam's far-reaching transgression, but we see Christ's far-reaching grace. They're contrasted. For 
if through the offense of one many be dead, that's one condition, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Adam's guilt and condemnation applied to many. But in contrast, the righteousness of Jesus Christ applies to many. What a wonderful contrast that is. The effect of their headship is given to us. In verse 16, Not as by one that sinned, so as the gift for judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Judgment followed one sin in Adam. Justification followed many sins in Christ. All it took was one from Adam to plunge the whole human race into perdition. But Jesus Christ bore the sins of many and took care of them all. What a wonderful contrast that is. And in verse 17, the, the contrast, death is the result of Adam's sin. Life is the result of Christ's righteousness. What a wonderful contrast. But we'll move on now from that to the representative headship triumphant in verses 18 through 21. It begins with a restatement of what's already been declared earlier, but in case you didn't get it or still have questions about it or not sure what Paul is saying or may still be wrestling with whether this is appropriate or not, look at it again. Here is the same thing stated in another way. Verse 18, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Is that clear enough? But even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. That's Verse 19 actually goes on to further restate it. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Amen. <laughs> Amen. We are told the nature of their actions in verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. We have this statement about the law in verse 20. It clarifies that. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might bound, abound. The law didn't didn't uh, cause sin, but what the law did was made it more conspicuous, and so it abounded. The, the example I gave earlier, Paul now knew that he had sinned when he coveted, when he didn't know that before, and so, so the offenses abound. But no problem for Christ, <laughs> where sin abounded. Grace did much more abound. Doesn't matter how many sins, how great they are, Christ is equal to it all. He is the champion. He is the one who triumphs. And so we have the triumph of grace over sin declared in verse 21. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. I know that's a little bit tedious, so I won't, didn't linger or won't linger any longer over that. But let's look at some of the implications and applications of this. 
This doctrine is commonly rejected on the basis that it's not fair. It's not fair that God should ascribe sinfulness to Adam's posterity for something that Adam did that they didn't do. And the logic of that thinking goes something like this. I know that God is righteous in everything. I don't consider the imputation of Adam's sin to all mankind to be fair. Therefore, it cannot be true. Isn't that the way many people reason? I know God's righteous in everything, but my mind says this isn't fair. And if my mind says it isn't fair, it can't be true. Nullify the scriptures. That happens in a lot of doctrines. We could talk about the doctrine of election. Many people reject it on exactly the same basis. That isn't fair. God's always fair. That doesn't seem fair to me. Therefore, it can't be true. I mean, you can, you can negate nearly anything in the Bible with that kind of reasoning. And that's what happens here. But here's the right way to reason. I know that God is righteous in everything. And the Bible declares that God imputed Adam's sin to all of Adam's posterity. Therefore, I know that this act of imputation is just. I may not understand it fully, but if the Bible says it, it's right. If the Bible says it, I believe it. If the Bible says it, I need to accept it and deal with it. Because not only... Is it true that Adam's sin and guilt is imputed to all his posterity, which means you and me and everyone in the world, but God has provided the remedy. Why will you sit around and criticize God and reject the remedy that God has given? Doesn't that just compound your guilt? That's sinful rebellion on display. But here's what I want to get to. If imputation of Adam's guilt is unjust, which it is not, on what righteous basis could a holy God provide any man's justification? It's, I mentioned that in the introduction, and I come back around to it now. If imputing Adam's guilt is something that's not fair to use modern language, then imputing Christ's righteousness is not fair either. I didn't earn it. It isn't mine. I didn't do it. So it's not fair. Isn't it strange how we don't worry about the unfairness of, of things we consider to be good? That doesn't bother us a bit. If God wants to do something good, that's, that's great. That's what God's supposed to do. But if God does something that I don't approve of, that's not, not okay. God's not allowed to do that. Who art thou, O man, who repliest to God? There's so many problems with that. But here's the point. It is because of the principle of imputation that began to work in the first head 
of the human race, Adam, that now there is a basis for God to impute righteousness to those who are in the second head, Christ. I'm in Adam. I'm guilty. Now, it is also true, I, I will say this much, it is also true that I've really got no complaint, no just complaint, because the only way I would, I would have what I suppose might be considered a just complaint against the doctrine of the imputation of sin is if I could say, I have not sinned. <clears throat> and therefore I'm being called guilty for Adam's sin because I've never done that. I've never sinned. Ha, 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 ha. You are awful deceived if that's what you think. We could take away the doctrine of imputed sin and you'd still be a guilty sinner. You can't get away from that. But it is understanding the doctrine of imputed sin that helps you to understand the doctrine of imputed righteousness and makes you understand that that, that is totally just because the principle is just all across the board. We see this sort of thing in, in uh, daily life, though we don't often complain about it, but we know it's true that, that we all enter into what somebody else has done on our behalf, and our representative. If I'm a citizen of the United States, and the President and Congress declares war with Russia or somebody else, I'm at war. I didn't choose it. I didn't ask for it. But I'm caught up in it. It applies to me. It, it's a principle that we actually we, we accept in other areas of life. And, and we would probably say, well, it's okay there. I understand it there, but I don't like it here. Let God be true, and everyone who objects to what God says acknowledge that they are saying falsehoods, they are saying what is not true. This is the truth, understand it. You are guilty of sin because of Adam's sin. Now you have added to that guilt so many times that you've lost count. Only God can tell you how many times. But you, you have added to it. But it all started there where Adam sinned and his sin was imputed to his posterity. But God has given his son. His son has earned a perfect righteousness. God has said he will impute that righteousness to everyone who trusts in him. That will deal with imputed guilt and earned and deserved guilt. It takes care of all of it. If you will not avail yourself of God's remedy, then who do you have to blame but yourself? I will conclude this message by reading the words of a hymn in your hymnal, which reminds me what the second thing was that I said that was wrong when I come to the hymnal. I said at the men's prayer breakfast Saturday morning that the two churches that, that uh, utilized this new hymn, this hymnal when it was new on the first Sunday, 
that it was put into use was this one and ours. I was wrong. We were one week ahead of y'all. <laughs> According to, to Paul, <laughs> that's what he told me. How about that? Isn't that amazing? We have really enjoyed this hymnal. We thank Joan Pinkston for putting it together. It is marvelous, and we enjoy it. And on this hymn, The Perfect Righteousness of God, I'm going to read the words, and this summarizes not only what I've said tonight, but what I've tried to say this morning and Saturday morning as well. The perfect righteousness of God is witnessed in the Savior's blood. Tis in the cross of Christ we trace His righteousness yet wondrous grace. God could not pass the sinner by. His sin demands that he must die. But in the cross of Christ we see how God can save us righteously. The sin is on the Savior laid. Tis in His blood sin's debt is paid. Stern justice can demand no more, and mercy can dispense her store. The sinner who believes is free, can say, the Savior died for me, can point to the atoning blood and say, this made my peace with God. Let's pray. Father, what wondrous truths. Oh Lord, please help what I have tried to communicate tonight to become clear in the hearts and minds of all who are here, that your people may rejoice with a greater fullness of understanding of what you have done for us in Christ, and that any who are outside of Christ may renounce their unbelief, renounce their stubborn rebellion, renounce their criticism against a thrice holy God, and bow in humble repentance and surrender to the one whose perfect righteousness will be imputed to their account if they will believe in him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.